The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I'm your host, Kelly Cable. The Battle of Deputies Run left the Citizens' Alliance stunned. Some members wanted to continue with violent confrontations. Others sought to trap and arrest the leadership. Although the strikers had decisively won two major battles in a row, the Citizens' Alliance still had the finances as well as the brazen support from the police chief and his forces. The Law and Order Committee of the CA, which Teamsters had taken to calling the Low and Order Committee, offered $20,000 for information on the strikers involved in the death of Arthur Lyman. This committee also sent a telegram to Senator Wagner of the National Labor Board, urgently requesting to help settle the strike in order hearings. Even before the Battle of Deputies Run, the newspapers had published letters complaining about the city being ruled by a mob that prohibited the exercise of the freedom of our American citizenship. Needless to say, the Battle of Deputies Run only inflamed the passions of every side of the dispute, employers, workers, city and state officials, and the public. The city council debated who was responsible for paying the special deputies. Conservatives on the council argued that it was in the city's interest to pay the men for their service. The farmer laborites on the council rejected this reasoning entirely. The total expenditures of the strike and costs to business from beginning to its end, which we will discuss today, totaled some $1,900,000, or over $30 million in today's money. In the end, the Citizens' Alliance was left to pay the deputies on their own, raising seventy-five dollars to $100,000 from bankers, wholesalers, and other industrial groups. True to their United Capitalist Front strategies, they did not ask the transfer companies struck against for any contributions. On the other side, strikers paid through fines and jail time. Forty-three strikers and sympathizers who couldn't pay the $200 bond remained in jail on charges ranging from disorderly conduct to assault. Historian Brian Palmer reports that, quote, dozens would be convicted, but the bulk of those brought to trial had their charges dismissed. When found guilty, strikers often received terms in the workhouse from 10 to 45 days. At the same time, building trades unions representing 35,000 workers declared sympathy strikes. Two members of the Communist League, the same political organization as Trotsky and the Duns, named Oscar Coover and Chester Johnson, convinced their union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, to march to the Teamster Strike headquarters. Iron workers and painters also walked off the job. Other unions called for a holiday to avoid explicitly calling for a strike. Teamsters International President Daniel Tobin attempted to intervene by sending a telegram to the union ordering it to seek arbitration, but due to battles that burdened them, the union simply never attended to it. Francis Shoemaker, the former Labor Council member who was arrested the morning of the second battle, now snooping around the headquarters, found the message and sent a reply. He wrote to Tobin, quote, Keep your scabby nose and scaly face out. This is a fight for human rights. Your rat job not involved. 
end quote. Shoemaker made it worse by not signing the telegram under his own name, but under Bill Brown's. When 574 found out, they officially repudiated Shoemaker and banned him from the headquarters. Tobin apparently accepted their explanation and attacked Shoemaker in the next edition of the Teamster Journal. But it also wouldn't necessarily be a lie to say that Shoemaker's telegram reflected the views of the locals' leadership. Tobin's position, documented in a letter to Teamster's vice president, was encouraging the strikers to settle for an open shop for now, partially to save off federal involvement. Tobin wrote, quote, I believe if they can now sign an agreement, putting all men back to work, establishing decent wages, and obtaining an agreement giving the preference to union men, that by the end of one year, they will be able to sign a strictly union shop agreement, end quote. While Tobin remained somewhat genial at this point, conflict between he and the socialist leadership of the strike would only worsen over the next months, and really years. Shortly after the battle on Tuesday afternoon in a wave of sympathy strikes, local AFL officials, as well as the Building Trades Council and Teamsters Joint Council, requested the police chief to withdraw the cops and end interference with the pickets. The labor leaders and the police chief met with Hennepin County Sheriff John Wall, where both parties called in Governor Olson to help negotiate. Olson arrived along with General E.A. Walsh, commander of the Minnesota National Guard. The meeting with Bill Brown and Grant Dunn, representing Local 574, ended in a 24-hour truce. It stipulated that the city market remain closed and for the Citizens Alliance to suspend attempts to move trucks. In return, the union was to suspend picketing with the exception of some observers. Both the employers and the union signed the truce, along with Walter Frank of the Lathers Union and Joel Anderson of the Steamfitters, on behalf of the building trades that had called sympathy strikes. Grocery and produce trucks were allowed to operate so as to placate the farmers. The truce did not last long, however. Police Chief Mike Johannes announced truck movements under police protection in response to which the union resumed picketing. Desperate Republican Mayor Bainbridge requested Governor Olson to mobilize the National Guard, to which he assented, using the threat of armed force to call for a 24-hour extension to the truce. Olson warned that he would declare martial law to, quote, take over all the machinery for distribution of foods and necessities, end quote. Local 574, along with nine other unions, denounced Olson's threat as an act of intimidation and would agree only if the truce's original provisions were reinstated. Olson accepted their demand and held back the National Guard, keeping 3,700 men on standby, armed with rifles, machine guns, and gas and chemical warfare implements. Olson also made a request to the National Labor Board to intervene, pointing to Local 574's demand that an agreement would be enforced by a state institution, but they deflected, vesting their authority into the Regional Labor Board. The Regional Labor Board, for its part, ordered an end to a strike, granting essentially all of the union's demands and encouraging any agreement to be put to paper. But the Citizens Alliance hoped for a change in public opinion that would give them leverage. Negotiations recommenced. This exchange between the union's employers and Governor Olson led Farrell Dobbs to make a point worth noting when he wrote Teamster Rebellion in 1972. You may or may not recall from episode 4, when I discussed the Russian Revolution, the notion of dual power. This described the volatile situation in 1917, where the workers, peasants, and soldiers of Russia ended their allegiance to the provisional government in favor of the Soviets. That is, there existed two states, a dual power, 
but only one could survive. When the Russian workers, peasants, and much of the military forces aligned with the Soviets, the provisional government collapsed and a new state emerged. Farrell Dobbs used this to theorize the fleeting situation in which the Minneapolis working class briefly found itself. Quote, Due to a regional peculiarity within a nation under firm capitalist rule, a local condition approximating dual power had temporarily arisen. The authorities could exercise control over the class struggle then raging only insofar as they proceeded in a manner acceptable to Local 574 and its allies. A combination of factors had brought about this situation. Being fearful about relying on Olsen to get their strike-breaking done, the bosses had decided to depend on the local police apparatus, which was controlled by old-line capitalist politicians. However, the cops proved incapable of doing the dirty job, so the mayor then tried to put Olsen on the spot by demanding help from the National Guard. This demand could not be met by the governor without raising a danger to him from another quarter. If he ordered the troops into naked strike-breaking action, it would jeopardize vital political support that he enjoyed from the labor movement. Olson was sharply reminded of the political threat from this quarter when Local 574 promptly denounced his action in calling up the guard and demanded that it be mobilized. He decided to back away from any idea of using the troops, and this kept things at a standoff in local class relations. If a comparable situation had existed nationally, what began as a simple trade union action could have broadened into a sweeping social conflict, leading toward a revolutionary confrontation for state power. As matters stood, however, the conflict did not reach beyond the city limits. On that narrow scale, nothing could be accomplished than to fight to finish in the battle for union recognition. End quote. Negotiations, however, were a trap. When the strike leaders arrived at the Nicolet Hotel, they made sure to bring along four cruising pickets full of strikers. The Citizens' Alliance had stationed 150 cops, detectives, and deputies at the hotel, armed with warrants. Lawyer Sam Levy welcomed them, but 574 declared that they'd negotiate only if the CA took the cops off our neck. The police were ordered to withdraw. Per their anti-union policy, the Citizens' Alliance refused to meet in the same room as the union. Instead, Olson and officials from the Regional Labor Board shuffled back and forth. Negotiations continued throughout the night, Miles Dunn napping with the telephone book as a pillow, Ray sleeping under the conference table. Throughout the battle of negotiations, wealthy residents sought to bring in outside help. Twelve prominent Minneapolis citizens, George Dayton among them, petitioned for federal involvement. A U.S. State Department official, Keith Merrill, reported to FDR's office supposed facts he had obtained from Rufus Rand. Rand was a special deputy and a prominent Minneapolis businessman who owned Minigasco, a company later brought out by the Fortune 500 Corporation Centerpoint Energy. He had also financed the construction of the still-standing Rand Tower and later served as the University of Minnesota regent. His grandfather had served as a mayor of Minneapolis. Rufus Rand told State Department official Keith Merrill, who told FDR, that Governor Olson had told the strikers to, quote, tighten their belts, arm themselves, and take what they wanted. He also said that at the Battle of Deputies Run, the deputies had laid down their clubs when confronted by the strikers, but were beaten anyway. He also made sure to let FDR know that the deputies were supporters of him, quoting Totten Heffelfinger as opposing Herbert Hoover. Merrill telephoned the president later in the day, declaring that, quote, the communists have imported some 1,500 people from Chicago who are hopped up with cocaine 
and are really professional strikers, end quote. He advised that the army step in. This exaggerated rhetoric would become more common over the following months. As Brian Palmer notes, the Citizens Alliance had to invent external forces to explain away the internal tensions they had themselves imposed upon the city's working class. And let us be clear about what this meant. The Citizens Alliance was in such a state of desperation they were begging the White House to intervene in this industrial dispute with military force. On Wednesday evening, May 23rd, the day after the Battle of Deputies Run and during the truce, the Union hosted a labor rally of over 5,000 strikers and sympathizers, men and women, old and young, organized and unorganized. Flyers were distributed with the words No Surrender printed at the top. The presidents of the State Federation of Labor and the Building Trades Council, as well as a state representative, pledged full support. Local President Bill Brown declared, quote, If we don't get full union recognition and an acceptable settlement, Local 574 will continue the strike and we will call upon all the workers to support us. The audience cheered. Olson's Lieutenant Governor, K.K. Solberg, spoke, wishing the strikers Godspeed. But knowing about Olson's mobilization of the National Guard, the audience responded with silence. On Thursday, after a night of sleeping on phone books and under tables, the Union had made some headway. As they had done before, 574 withdrew their demand for direct union recognition to undermine the bosses' hardline tactics. The bosses relented on their refusal to rehire strikers, although hedged by stating only if the striker was not found guilty of a crime. More contentious was the ever-present issue of the inside workers. To remind you, inside workers were those not actively involved in the operation of the truck itself, but helped load and unload them in the yards, warehouses, and groceries. Local 574, seeking an industrial union strategy that brought together workers across an industry, regardless of craft distinctions, considered the inclusion of inside workers essential to the cause. Both the employers and conservative labor leaders, however, wanted to keep the inside workers out. Talks once again stalled on this point. Feeling they still had the leverage, the Duns declared to the CA and Labor Board that they had only one hour left to compromise or they'd resume the strike, truce or no truce. 574 walked out and returned to 1900 Chicago Avenue. The governor, desperate, sent his chauffeur in hopes of convincing they'd resume negotiations. The strike leaders accepted and returned to the hotel. Olson forged a compromise on the inside workers' issue. A tentative agreement was reached on Friday, May 25th. It included a minimum wage, reinstatement of strikers, no discrimination regarding union membership, arbitration for future wage changes, and seniority in hiring and layoffs. It did not include direct recognition of the union. Instead, the policy of meeting through the Labor Board through a consent order, the result of the February strike, was unstated and contracts would be worked out employer by employer. With these terms, the union considered it an advance, but not a complete victory. Core to the story was Olson's ambiguous wording regarding who was in the union and who was not. Paragraph 3 read, quote, All members of the union in dealing with employers may be represented by officers of the union, end quote. Straightforward, but paragraph 8 of the agreement read, quote, The terms employees as used herein shall include truck drivers and helpers and such other persons as are ordinarily engaged in the trucking operations of the business of the individual employer, end quote. 
While the strike leaders interpreted this language to mean that inside workers were included as those who were ordinarily engaged in the trucking operations, the employers, on the other hand, interpreted this clause as giving them the discretion to completely exclude such workers. Another result of ambiguous wording was differing senses of arbitration. Arbitration boards, according to the agreement, would, quote, create a system for handling disputes, establishing the first and essential step to normal collective bargaining, end quote. We will see that the employers worked the language to mean that a new arbitration board was set up for every single dispute, rather than existing as a perpetual entity like the labor boards, as Local 574 interpreted. On these two issues, the strike leadership may have placed too much trust in Olson. The tentative agreement was brought to the rank-and-file of Local 574 on Monday evening, May 28th. The debate was heated. A member of the Citizens Alliance who attended called the crowd, quote, thousands and thousands of bums and hoodlums and communists, end quote. Leaders recommended ratification, claiming that it was a compromise, but on no fundamentals. Some in the crowd wanted to push further and continue the strike. Leaders, however, worried about public support, strike funding, and the threat of the National Guard. They had bested the Minneapolis Police Department, but were they in a position to confront the Guard? The agreement was ratified, but the decision remained contentious, particularly among outsiders. The Communist Party, for example, accused the Dunn brothers as having sold out. Their older brother, Bill Dunn, who had remained within the party, even authored a pamphlet declaring so. Bill Brown, president of the local, told journalist Charles Walker, in his typical exaggerative manner, but also invoking, perhaps unconsciously, the notion of dual power, that, quote, there's no question that we could have taken over the city after the battle of deputies run. We controlled it. Although it would have been necessary to seize power, would have been to urge a few thousand strikers to capture the courthouse. They would have done it. Yeah, sure, the union might have made me Soviet mayor, huh? And Skoglin over there, Kamizar police, ha <laughs> ha. That's just what the Citizens' Alliance had been screaming for days that we wanted to do, to make a Russian Soviet in Minneapolis. But we happened to want a truck driver's union in Minneapolis, and some of our leaders were revolutionists enough to tell the difference between a militant strike and a revolution, end quote. This perspective was shared by the leader of the American Trotskyists, James Cannon, who arrived from New York during the heat of negotiations. I will introduce him in more detail in a later episode, but he captured the spirit of what had happened in a Marxist manner. Quote, Every strike is in compromise in the sense that it leaves the bosses in control of industry and free to exploit the workers. The best settlement only limits and checks this exploitation to a certain extent. Realistic leaders do not expect justice from the capitalists. They only strive to extract as much as possible from the union in the given situation and strengthen their forces for another fight. Here was a demonstration that the American workers are willing and able to fight in their own interests. Nothing is more important than this, for in the last analysis, everything depended on it. End quote. The key here was gaining momentum and then maintaining it. The Socialists' Party newspaper, The Militant, pointed to the four victories of the May strike. Defeat and reversal of the Citizens' Alliance's open shop offensive, explosive growth of the union and its recognition, at least by the state, the development of proven and respected leadership, and last, the demonstration of the capitalist state's violent and legal coercion against the working class. 
not to mention that the Citizens' Alliance would never mount a privately funded army again in its history. This was all an incredible amount to have achieved in the course of a few weeks' preparation and 11 days of strike and negotiations. But still, this was only among the first steps needed to actually relieve workers of their burdens and transform capitalist society into a socialist society. Journalist Charles Walker, in his assessment, agreed with the leadership, suggesting that continuing the strike would have been irresponsible. Walker wrote that they, quote, recognized the need for recruitment and consolidation of actual gains as a basis for future struggle. After all, they had 7,000 members to integrate into the Union. Once integrated, then the Union could become a more powerful instrument to wage fights. Even with the compromises, the Minneapolis Labor Review was able to hail the second Teamsters strike of 1934 as, quote, the greatest victory over the Citizens' Alliance in the history of the city, end quote. But the next explosion was a mere two months away and would put the question on everyone's minds to the test. Could the Union survive a confrontation with the National Guard? You have been listening to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I'm your host, Kelly Cable, and thank you for listening.